During the five weeks of October, the five Sundays of October, we're going to be doing a series, a special series on the anniversary of the Reformation. And we're going to be looking at essential truths rediscovered. They certainly weren't invented during the Reformation, but they were rediscovered in the Reformation. We're going to be looking at five truths, and today we're going to be looking at the first of those. We're going to be looking at two passages, two texts of the Bible together. One is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and that's on page 1099 in the Bibles that are available to you. And the other is in 2 Peter, and that's uh, page 1120. So 2 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 1, and I'll read them together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, and then 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then Second Peter 1, 19-21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Today I would like to tell you a story, and it's a story about a book. It's a book that took about 1,400 years to write, and it was written by dozens of different authors. It was concluded over 1,900 years ago, and it stands alone among ancient literature in terms of the purity of its transmission during the ages. A number of books from antiquity, we have very little evidence of what the originals actually said. But this book stands alone because we have thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts, so we can have great security in knowing what this book originally said. It's been preserved through the ages. For centuries, people have gathered to study this book. They have gathered to stake their lives on its teaching. They have passed it on to others. They have translated it into over 600 languages, and they have carried it to the ends of the earth. And some have even died for this book. It is the all-time best-selling book in all of history. And of course, I'm talking about the book that is before us. I'm talking about the Bible. However, during many centuries, there was a problem of getting access to this book. Because printing was always by hand, it was very laborious, It was very tedious, it was very difficult, and it was very expensive. And so, each of these manuscripts had to be hand-copied in order to be sent on to others. And so, few, relatively few, had actually read this book. And few had access to it. And so, over the years, 
uh, church leaders became increasingly ignorant of its contents. And so other ideas began to creep in. Things that were in addition to this book, this Bible, things that were not found in the Bible, and then, worst of all, things that were actually contrary to the teaching of the Bible crept in to the church. Well, during the time of the Renaissance, there was a cry of the scholars. It was ad fontes, to the sources. And the idea was to get back to the original sources, whatever it might be that we're studying. And so in order to get back to the sources of the Bible, they didn't want to continue to read the Latin Bible that had been translated over a thousand years before, it was translated in four in the four hundreds, and then a thousand years later they were still using this, this translation, but that was a translation. They wanted to get back to the source, and fortunately, uh, Hebrew scholarship was coming to Europe, and Greek scholarship was coming to Europe, and so the, the, some of the, the, the studious of the church began to go back and look at the Old Testament in Hebrew and look at the New Testament in Greek. And as they began to study the Bible, uh, deeply they found that there were many things that were in the practice of the church and in the belief of the church that were not in the Bible and these were contradictory. And so what these uh, folk did, they, they raised their hands and they raised their voices and said, brothers and sisters, we've, we've out of ignorance, we've been led astray and so let's get back to what the original teaching of this book is. But unfortunately and tragically, There were vested interests in keeping the church system just as it was. And rather than saying, that's wonderful, you've you've rediscovered truths that we've neglected and that we've forgotten, instead, some of the powerful in the church resisted. And instead of welcoming this new information, this rediscovered information, they rejected it and caused, tragically, a split to take place in the church. And I'm talking about the time of the Protestant Reformation. But it was impossible to keep these rediscovered truths under wraps because there was a man named Johannes Gutenberg. And he had made an invention that was revolutionary. And it was the moving press. And so, for the first time in the history of the world, books were able to be produced en masse, and books were able able to be distributed. And uh, one of the first books, or I think the first book that he printed, was the Gutenberg Bible. And so, now all of a sudden, people were able to read the Bible for themselves. And these uh, men who were studying the Bible, they're able to to print and produce works to to help the common people for the first time in Mass to be able to understand and to study this Bible. And what we're talking about is the time of the Reformation, and we are... Uh, somewhat arbitrarily, but, but not completely arbitrarily, calling this year and this month the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we are because on October 31st, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk in Germany, he published 95 Theses. And that was a, a spark that set off uh, the, the Reformation in Germany and set off the opposition of the powerful against him. Now, that's uh, a little bit artificial because there were Reformation movements taking place in France and in Switzerland and in other parts of Europe. Why? Because they were all reading the same Bible and they were all just rediscovering the same truths. And actually some of them before 1517 
And actually, there had been a, an aborted Reformation in Bohemia a hundred years before that with John Huss and the Hussites. And so uh, here we're, 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 we're calling this the 500th year of the, uh, of the Reformation, but, but there were other Reformation movements going on even before that. Now, what we're going to look at during these five weeks are five rediscovered truths. Five rediscovered truths. And later, not necessarily during the Reformation, but later these were sort of formulated into five slogans. And five slogans that help us to remember these truths. These aren't an official part of any creed or confession, but they they summarize some of the things that were rediscovered in the Reformation movement. And they're often called the solas, the onlys of the Reformation. You see, what the church had done is it had taken a number of, of these truths and it added on to them. So they were no longer alone. But in the Reformation, they peeled back some of this this unhelpful uh, church tradition. And they said, let's get back to the essence. And that's why they're called the onlys or the solas of the Reformation. And the first of which we're going to look at is called sola scriptura in Latin. Or scripture alone. Scripture alone. Now, in order to do that, we're going to look at what scripture teaches about scripture. And somebody might say, well, well, wait a minute. How are you going to do that? You're going to ask Scripture what it says about itself? And shouldn't we get some other source, uh, some sort of neutral source out there to tell us about Scripture? But think about it for just a sec. If Scripture is what it says it is, and we're going to see what it says it is, there can can be no other source that can be a higher testimony. We're going to see that it declares itself to be the Word of God. And so, where would you go for some other authority to tell us about what it is. We'll have to go to itself. So we're, we're, we're asking Scripture what it says about itself, but there's no one else to ask. Because if it is what it says it is, it is the highest testimony about itself and is the only one that we can really believe. Now, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. In order to describe Scripture, it looks like what Paul did here was make up a new word. And we, in English, are great at making up new words. We take two nouns, and we stick them together, and we have a new word. We have words like toothbrush, and that's very descriptive. And and English is very, very, uh, right, yeah, toothbrush. So you have a brush, and you use it on your teeth, and so what is it? A Toothbrush, exactly. And English is great like that. Not all languages are like that. Spanish isn't like that, but English is. Well, Greek, you can do that as well. And so it looks like what Paul did is he took two words and he mashed them together and made up a new word in order to describe what Scripture is. And if you look at verse 16 of of 2 Timothy 3, it says, All Scripture, and in English, that's translated here, breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. But that's his new word. It's just one word, and he put two words together, and the two words are God and breathed. So all Scripture is God-breathed. One word, God-breathed. And what's he getting at there? He's using a metaphor. In order for us to, to have physical life, what do we need to do? We need to breathe, right? God doesn't need to breathe like we do. So he's using a metaphor. He's using a, a human metaphor. We, how do we form words? By the way, what am I doing right now in order to form my words? What do I have to do? I have to breathe. I have to breathe. Actually, I have to exhale. 
I, I, I could try to inhale and form words, but it's difficult, right? Okay, you, normally we have to exhale in order to form words, okay? And so that's the, the metaphor, that's the, the image that he's using here, that, uh, that all Scripture is God-breathed, God-exhaled. And the, the point of this is, is this, that the source, the source of the words of Scripture is God Himself. If we would ask the question, these words that you're hearing right now, what is the source of these words? You would say, well, you're the source of these words. I, Larry, I'm the source of these words. How do you know that? Because I'm breathing them out. And, and that's the image here. Where, from where did these words come? They came from God. And here it's pointing to the source. They came from Him. He breathed them out. Now, um, there have been many efforts to limit how much of the Bible we consider to be God's Word. And sometimes scholars get together and they debate about, is this part God's Word or is that part God's Word? But according to Paul, which part is God's Word? If you look at it right, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, when Paul was writing this, what did he mean by all Scripture? What was a Scripture for Paul? It was the Old Testament. And so this is referring to the Old Testament. So all of the Old Testament is God-breathed. And it's interesting that the uh, Paul treated the, the, the words and actually even the letters of the Old Testament as God-breathed. There's an interesting example where Paul makes an argument. It's in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.16. It's on page 1076. 1076. Paul makes this argument, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so there he's making an argument from Scripture based on what? That the word is singular instead of plural. So he's, he's, he's talking about a question of letters, not even just words, he's talking about a question of letters, and he's basing his argument on, on the singularity of that certain noun. So, uh, Paul is saying that all Scripture, uh, down to the very words of Scripture. Now, what about the New Testament? It's interesting that the New Testament writers were conscious of the fact that they were instruments of God as well to give us God's words too. For example, if you look at 1 Corinthians, 14.37, it's on page 1063, 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says this. He says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's remarkable. But Paul is saying, uh, if you think you're a prophet, you should take into account that what I'm writing to you comes from the Lord. So there was a self-consciousness on the part of the apostles that they too were communicating God's Word. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, at least on a couple of occasions, the New Testament recognizes other parts of the New Testament as God's Word. We already, uh, if you already, you still have your finger in Second Peter. If you go back to Second Peter, but look at chapter three of Second Peter. It's on pages uh, 1,121 and 22. And here it says, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says that you should remember, um, 
Let's go back to one. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What's he doing here? He's putting prophets of the Old Testament and he's putting apostles, Christ's apostles, on the same level as instruments of God's Word. And there's one more if you turn one page over. Second Peter 3. 15 and 16, here Peter refers to Paul. And he says here, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other... What's it say? Scriptures. So here's Peter writing about Paul's letters, and what does he call them? Scriptures. Scriptures, and he puts them on the same level as the Scriptures. So this is remarkable, that in the New Testament, it recognizes itself as a continuation of that same revelation of God's Word from the Old Testament. The prophets, and now the apostles. Now, going back to... Going back to, this may sound theoretical, it's of, of utmost importance, but, but here let's go back to see what, what's the takeaway in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, and then the rest of this talks about, so what? So what, what is, what, for what is it useful? It says, well, it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for correction, and it's profitable for training in righteousness. In order that, verse 17, in order that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How many would like to be complete here? How many would like to be complete? How can we be complete according to what we just read? We can be complete by paying attention to all Scripture. And how many would like to be ready whenever there's a good work that comes our way? We'd like to be ready to be able to do that good work. How can we be ready? We can be ready by paying attention to all Scripture that is God-breathed. That's the source. Now let's go to Second Peter because Second Peter answers a different question than uh, than Second Timothy. Second Peter answers a question. We already have the source, right? But the question is then: How did it get into human writing? How did uh, God breathed it out, but how did it get written down? And here we have the answer in Second Peter, one nineteen to twenty one, and especially, especially if you look at verse twenty. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So here he's denying that the source of of Scripture is is human. But then he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. We already know that, right? It's from God. And here's the new information. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's the new information. And this has to do with mechanism at some level. That is to say, how did this work? How did this happen? Well, we don't know all the details, but he's saying that that the Holy Spirit carried them along in order that what they spoke and what they wrote was exactly what God had breathed out. So we have the source, and now we have the the, the writing and the speaking thereof. Now, um, there is a... 
an illustration perhaps of this, the same word, it's a common word in the New Testament, but there's there's an illustration of this that I think is helpful. In Acts chapter 27, verse 15, it's on page 1037, Acts 27, 15, this is when Paul was sailing for Rome. And they got into a storm. And in verse 15 it says, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way and were driven along. That word driven along is the same word that Peter uses to say that the people who spoke from God were carried along. So now we have an image in our mind. Uh, Sailors do what they can to get the boat to where they want it to go, right? But here it's saying that what ultimately picked the destination for this boat. Well, if we read the story, it was the wind. So they were doing what they could, but it was the wind that carried them along. And uh, that's an interesting illustration because in the Old Testament, wind and spirit is the same word. And so the wind was taking the sailboat along and the, the spirit was taking the writers along. And so what they wrote and what they said had... There are marks all over it. If you read Peter, he doesn't sound like Paul. And if you read Paul, he doesn't sound like Isaiah. And if you read Isaiah, he doesn't sound like Ezekiel. And so we we see and hear the the individuality of the the different writers of the the Bible. So it's not that God uh, wiped out their personality. On the contrary, He took their personalities, He took their education, He took their experiences, He took their preparation, and He carried them along. He used all that so that the end product was His Word, as well as being their words. Now, um, think about it this way. I'm not an artist, but I know that artists use different media. Uh, let's say we have a painter who's using, you choose, oil-based paint or something like that. Um, I'll quickly get out of my depth of understanding of, of, of uh, painting. But I know that they use, they, use, they use paint and they use brushes and other things. But let's just stick with paint and brushes. That's, that's within my, my, uh, my ability to understand. Well, um, if a, uh, an artist uses different paints and different brushes, what does he produce? Or what does she produce? What he or she wants to produce. But the brushes leave their mark, don't they? So the product is the artist's product. But the brushes leave their lines that might be flat or textured or wide or whatever it might be. And the different textures of paint. And so that's an illustration of what God does. So He doesn't obliterate them. On the contrary, He uses all that they have so that we see them here. But the final product is the work of God. Now, going back to Second Peter, just like we did in Timothy, the, what's the takeaway of this message? So we have, in Timothy, we have that the source of Scripture, all Scripture is God. In Peter, we have the mechanism for it getting spoken and written down is the Holy Spirit carrying men, perhaps women, along. And the practical takeaway is in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word made more more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What's the, what's the, what's the, the, the practical implication of all this? Pay attention. Pay attention. If you're in a dark place and there's one light, what do you do? You pay attention to that one light. And that's what it's saying. We live in a dark place and there's one light. Pay attention to that light. How long? Until daybreak. Until everything's light. 
But for right now, this is the light you have. So guide your life by that light. Now let's, let's think of a couple more implications of this. Um, one is this. If the Bible is the Word of God, it does not fail or have mistakes. Why not? Because God does not fail or make mistakes. That's an implication. If it is His words, it does not fail or have any mistakes. Another is this. And here's where we get to the Reformation context. If the Bible, not just the Reformation context, our context as well. If the Bible is the Word of God, it takes precedence over all traditions and all personal impressions. All traditions and all personal impressions. You see, when we ask the question, um, if those of us who believe in God, we believe that He has spoken in some way or another. Now, um, you might ask, where has He spoken? And some might answer, well, He's spoken through the church and the church's traditions. And the Reformers said, we appreciate tradition, but, um, but we need to test tradition by the Word of God. And if the tradition is out of accord with the Word of God, then it's not helpful and it can be harmful. And so it takes precedence over that. But then there were some, we haven't talked about them yet, but the radical reformers, the radical reformers were saying to the the main reformers, saying, you guys didn't go far enough. And we have the Holy Spirit and God speaks to us directly. And so uh, they were saying, yes, the Word of God, it trumps tradition, but God told me... This And there were a number of excesses as they went into their, their personal revelations from God. And in the middle were the Reformers, kind of a, with a two-front uh, battle going on, and saying that the Word of God, if the Bible is the Word of God, it takes precedent over whatever tradition the, the church might have, good or bad, and it takes precedence over personal impressions, whatever they might be, uh, good or bad. Now, the, the thing about this, this is, this is what the, the Protestant Reformation meant by sola scriptura, or scripture alone. It was not saying we have no traditions. All human societies have traditions. They were not against traditions. They, they also were not saying that we don't have any personal impressions from God. They were not saying that, that, that the Holy Spirit has no involvement in our life. But they were saying whatever those things might be, they have to be checked by the written Word of God. Because this is the only Word of God that we have that is without mistake and without error. Now this, this greatly simplifies something with which we all struggle. And that is the will of God for our lives. But it's curious that we would struggle with that so much. Why? Well, because when we ask what's God's will for our lives, um, here it is. Here it is. You mean you want more? You mean you're doing all this and you're wanting more? You mean you're being unfailingly kind to everybody? You mean you're, you're, you're giving generously of all that you have and are? You mean you're, you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you're looking for more will of God for your life? Well, when you want to know what the will of God is, read the Bible. It's here. He tells us. Maybe you want some details But really, those details will fall into place if we are doing what He has already revealed to us. So this greatly simplifies the the question of the will of God for our lives. And it checks us when we maybe are saying, well, I think God wants me to do this. We need to ask ourselves, is this in accordance with the will of God? 
Or as a church, well, we, we need to develop this uh, sort of tradition in our church. Maybe so. But we need to ask the question, is this in accordance with the will of God? Now, look what we have here. We have this idea that might sound very, very strange and very foreign. The idea of a book that is fully divine, that is fully from God, and at the same time, fully human, written by human authors. And that's, that can be kind of hard to conceive of, of a book that is completely divine, it is God's Word, but it is written by humans, and so it is a human book as well. But when we think about what this book says, we realize that this book that is fully human and fully divine tells a story, a message, about a man who is fully divine and fully human. And so it's not surprising that God would make the medium of that message to be just like the message itself. God has given us His communication in a way that is His and it is ours. And that communication, that word that He has given us, tells us about a man that is His and He is also ours. He is God who has become one of us, born as we were born, lived lives, a human life, just like we live a human life, except that He had no sin, died a death at the end of that life, a death that was a substitute for all who believe in Him, and then He rose again from the dead, and He is seated at the right hand of God. And so we have a book, a human book. We have a divine book that tells us about a human Savior, a divine Savior. And if we will believe the words of this book, breathed out by God, we will also place our faith in the one about whom this book tells us, the one who is God, the one who is human, who has given himself for us. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that we have your word. Oh, how many generations of Christians would have given almost anything to have even a portion of this book that we have before us. We thank you that we have multiple copies and multiple versions. We have access to it on our, on our devices that are in our pockets, on our computers, on the radio. We have access to your word, Lord. What, what a treasure we have. We have such an advantage over, over generations and generations who gathered sometimes in secret places in order to hear just a portion of Your Word read. And, O God, I pray that our response would be in line with our privilege, that we would pay attention to Your Word as a lamp shining in a dark place, that we would apply to Your Word for for teaching, for instruction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we might be complete and that we might be fully equipped for every good work that You have for us. And we thank You that Your Word leads us to Your Word. Your written Word leads us to the living Word, Jesus Christ, who is God and who is one of us and who has given Himself for us. And so we pray for faith in Your Word, in Your written Word, that we might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.